All right. Well, welcome everybody back to another episode of Country Drive. And I am very honored to uh, introduce our guest for the day, Mr. Roger Murrah. Thank you, Taylor. Glad to be here, buddy. Well, I appreciate it. I'm very glad that you said yes to coming on and I'm excited to speak to you. I really enjoyed getting to meet you for the first time a month ago and seeing you perform. And I hope you don't mind if I analyze you to you. But there's something I've always do. I have to pay for this. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've always wanted to be analyzed. (laughs) Well, no, I I walked in that room expecting a lot of talent. We have a picture there of who was there that night. It was Mr. Murrah, David Lee Murphy, Keith Stagall, and Rafe Van Hoy. And it was a special night with a special group of songwriters and musicians. Man, those other guys were special. It's the first time we had all worked together. Oh, really? And it was such a—it was a warm, warm uh, occasion. Well, as I was saying, I walked in expecting to hear all the amazing talent that I've grown up with my entire life. But one of the things that really touched me about you is the joy— that you have for life and for music. I mean, the excitement and passion that you have filled up the room. Wow. And that's why I had Thank to make a you. I had to make a beeline to you after to I didn't know that. To just wow. introduce myself. Thank uh, you. You're also someone who after I introduced myself has the funniest response I think I've ever heard. I said you you asked me my name and I said Taylor Swade and you go, "Oh, almost." <laughs> <laughs> I guess everyone knows we're talking about Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah. Roger also— That name's serving you well right now. Right? Yeah. Uh, You also, like a good golfer, has a great caddy. You're a pretty special guy. You have your own guitar player. Yeah. Well, I have to have one. You know, I I, I did all my writing with a Wurlitzer piano, Mm -hmm. and uh, which I think is the most soulful instrument there is to write with. It's percussive, and it's also melodic. And— but these days, uh, I, I usually just hire a guitar player, you know, and so I was breaking in one that night. <laughs> well, speaking of soulful, if we can go back to uh, somewhere at the beginning for you, you you got your start in music in an R&B band? Oh, yeah, yeah. We were very unique that way. We were in Huntsville, Alabama area, in Athens. I'm from Athens. And... Uh, we were, we were just love. I grew up on R&B. That's my background, and I love that beginning. And um, in fact, I feel like just a small part of the Muscle Shoals explosion that we all have enjoyed so much through the years. You know, Rick Hall, st- who started all that, the founding father of Muscle Shoals. He he gave me a contract when I was in the army. Mm-hmm. A, a, exclusive songwriting contract. And I, I joke and tell people that back in those days, Rick would sign anybody that could hold a pencil. He was that smart. But um, anyhow, he gave me uh, he gave me my first real break. Did you watch the Muscle Shoals documentary? Yes, Ben, I love it. I've watched it over and over. And I tell everybody about it. Even if you're not into music, it's an amazing documentary. 
I had the pleasure of getting to uh, speak to a couple of times the guy that did that film. It was and his, his first. first it? Yeah. It's amazing. It's a really interesting story. His name is Freddie Camelier, an extremely nice guy. I reached out to him about a project I was working on because I was kind of lost with what I was doing as a first timer. And I had heard his story and he kind of told it to me and, and gave me some advice on some of the stuff I had written up. But he was driving across country helping a friend move. And they saw a sign, Muscle Shoals that way or whichever <laughs> way it was. And they said, you, you know, let's go sleep there tonight. And they left there and had decided when they left, we got to do a story about it. And they reached out to Amazing. Rick and, you know, they were off to the races from there. So they, they spoke to Rick. Huh? Yeah. They kind of decided the glue that would hold it all together is Rick. Oh, absolutely. So if he doesn't say yes, uh, then there might not be a project. But wow. luckily he said yes. And the That's next amazing. thing— they got Aretha, yeah. the Stones. The the documentary blows me away. It's unreal. And and of course, I feel uh, just a little bit of part of that because that's where I started. Uh, I actually took my mother to a place uh, called Rogersville, where women used to go to buy shoes uh, inexpensively. And and I was in the army at the time, and I was off on. Uh, uh, I, uh, what was I going to say? I was on a break from the Army. And so I took her over there. And so while I was there, I, I just drove on over to Muscle Shoals and met with Rick. Mm -hmm. And uh, he signed me. It's, it was amazing. Was it pretty special to be around Muscle Shoals in that time? It was to me, uh, but it was the closest thing to a music center I had ever been, really. And it was just beginning, really, and in, in its infancy. And uh, I actually recorded a 45 over there, which means two songs. <laughs> and Rick was the engineer for it. And uh, it's it's an amazing part of history to me to to have done that with him. And uh, so it, it was special, yeah. Do you I took, I took my little white band in and did a— Kind of an R&B thing. Well, you know, that's one of the things that was so appealing to a lot of the people that came there, like Etta James and Aretha Franklin, is they walked in and they saw a bunch of white guys and said, what the heck is this going to be? And the Swampers just oh, no. just made everybody go, wow, they can play our music. As white as cotton. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I hear I heard the story about Jerry Wexler mm -hmm. calling Al Bell in Memphis. Mm -hmm. At Stax. And he said he wants— he wanted the same group of musicians, those black musicians that played for, I forget who it was. Otis Redding. Was it Otis? Or is that, uh, that's Booker T's. Um, anyhow, he wanted the same people that that had recorded with someone else in Muscle Shows to take Aretha. Uh, Aretha. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, those guys are a little lighter than that, but I'll be glad to introduce you. <laughs> And that, that was the beginning. Well, speaking of the beginning, do you remember the first time you ever heard your song on the radio? Hmm. I, I can't really say that I do. I, I, I kind of remember the feeling more than in the specific instant, incident. What'd that feel like? It was, it was really special. It was kind of surreal. And... Uh, you know, it's hard to put into words. It's like 
you know, I'd, I'd, I loved radio back in those days, and there I was having a song played on it. You know, it's surreal, I guess. You So with your growing up as a <clears throat> an R&B artist and playing an R&B band, you wrote a song with Keith Segal that I don't think we talked about uh, with Keith, but we're in this love together. You didn't talk about that with I Keith? I don't think so. You're kidding. Well, you know, Keith, we had to talk about a lot of production. <laughs> yeah. and Well, yeah. Well, with Keith, you, you could talk about a thousand things. But yeah, yeah, we were very fortunate to get that recorded. And sticking to the what it's like moment, what's it like when your song is part of a Viagra commercial? <laughs> Well, it pays well. <laughs> and uh, I've kind of added it to my, when I'm performing live somewhere, I tell people that Viagra tried to pay us in pills. And we weren't having it. We wanted the money, you know. So, but uh, Is that true? They really tried to pay you in pills? No. Okay. No. Okay. That's a good story. Though. Yeah. But... Uh, but yeah, we got two two years out of that thing, man. And it's and which was very rare for country writers to be getting a national ad campaign, and uh, it was it was unbelievable. You know, one of the reasons we call this country drive is about the drive to make it. But uh, there's something from your story that's kind of interesting to me when I think about people that are pursuing a dream. But uh, there are struggles along the way that you want to be, you know, solely focused on accomplishing that goal at one. But I, I like for people to learn about when you're trying to accomplish a goal that sometimes you have to regroup and draw up a new blueprint. At some point while you were um, pursuing your dream, did you leave to go manage a grocery store? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, when I first moved to Franklin, I, I was... My wife and I were very broke, and my her her dad and my dad moved us up here, and I ended up getting a job at the Georgia Boot Fact Boot Company mm -hmm. just down the street in Franklin, and worked there a year, which was a big deal to me because it was the first time I had been on a job long enough to get a paid vacation. And so I got a vacation, but I didn't have any money to go anywhere. You know? But yeah, we uh, we moved to Franklin, and uh, oh, and then I did the music thing for a while, and I was kind of, uh, you know, it wasn't going great. So I had a friend call me. He said, "I just bought a little grocery store down here. How would you like to come down and run it for me?" and Basically, I, I I didn't have that much going on in the music business, so I said, "Yeah, I'll I'll be glad to." And so I went down there and, and stayed a year and made more money than I'd ever made in my life working for my friend, and um, had a real nice apartment, nicer than I'd ever, ever had. So the grocery business has me had me flying high for the for about a year. <laughs> Well, the reason I ask you that is for people that are listening and, you know, have a lot of admiration for all your success and the, and the understanding of how to navigate the challenges of the economics of pursuing your mm -hmm. dream. So I just wondered how you felt, like, were you abandoning the dream or did you just say, you know, I'm going to go do this for a year? 
because of the Oh, anchor. no, no. I was not abandoning, abandoning it. I was basically trying to make a living. Right. And uh, even my wife always said I would always be back. Mm-hmm. I, I would never have not come back. But it was a break. It was just to make a little money to get me by, you know? Well, I appreciate you talking about that because I, I think it's great when people can see that, you know, you're trying to pursue a dream, but you also, oh, yeah. have, to, you also have to take care of yourself. Yeah, we call it supporting our habit. Right. <laughs> and it can be an expensive habit, just, yeah. habit when you get into demos and whatnot. Exactly. Well, I want to talk to you about one of my favorite subjects in the world, and that's Waylon Jennings. Mm, he's one of my favorite subjects, too. I mean, a fascinating guy. When I was in maybe ninth grade, I had the pleasure of, he had just written an autobiography. So I drove to North Birmingham at a bookstore that he was in and got an autographed copy of the book. And I can remember just, I saw the Shooter 5 bus out front. Yeah. And going in there and seeing him. And, you know, I know that he was a famous guy, but when you're around Waylon, you just feel something. You know what? I, I, that never did leave after I got to know him. He always remained bigger than life to yeah. me. And and kind of rarely because so many other artists don't. But he really had a thing about him. He was a very special friend. But Waylon contacted you, I guess, somewhere in the mid-80s. Um, yeah. And kind of asked you to help him with something that's a pretty important moment because a lot of people don't have artists that call them and say, I just need your help for the whole album. Mm. Yeah. And I wonder if you'll talk a little bit about this album. We might have it up on screen right now. Oh, a Man yeah. Called Hoss. Yeah. Yeah. Very special memories there. Um, well, it was before Christmas one year, and I can't remember the year, actually, but he, he called me to come down to his office. So I took my brother-in-law, who was a kind of a, a amateur photographer, so we could get some pictures and a proof that I had been there. <laughs> and I took my father-in-law with me just to let him meet Waylon. And we went down and I met with him. And his office looked just like you would think Waylon Jennings' office would look. There was a lot of black velvet and leather. And his girl that had been with him forever, uh, his right-hand lady there that worked for him in his office. She decorated his office and it was it was beautiful. It was uh, very Waylon-esque. And so we were sitting in there um, and yeah, he, he, he said, unbeknownst to me, he had been listening to some of my demos and he loved the way I phrase songs when I sang. And um, he had actually cut two or three of my things through the year, through the years. And um, so that's what got him interested in me. To So he said, I, I've been wanting to write a, an autobiography about my life before I die and someone gets it wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'd love for you to write it with me, what he said. And I said, man, I'd... That, that would be amazing. And, of course, I was just getting to know him, and I didn't know if this was going to come through or not. But um, So we had our meeting, and it went amazingly well. 
and I was just on cloud 40. And um, and then we got to thinking about doing the album, and being a Christian, I was a little concerned about how we'd handle the drug days. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's funny, a little side note here, Tom Collins was my publisher at the time. Tom was just an amazing uh, producer, publisher, but... Uh, so he was he was always interested in making every penny he could. He was very, very good businessman. Taught me a lot, really. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, I was telling him I was having a little concern about that. And Tom said, hey, man, we'll work it out. Don't worry about it. And it was all about making the money to Tom. So anyhow, I talked to Waylon about it. And he's, he made me a promise that he never backed down on. He said, Hoss... When we write a song, if we're not both happy with it, we won't put it out. And that was my assurance that I didn't have to worry about what, how we handle things because he, he was going to let me have some uh, limitations about how we'd approach different subjects. And he, he was just amazing like that. He was, an, he was a killer friend. If you, if Waylon was your friend, boy, you could count on him. His word was his bond. He really was. We need more people like that in the world these oh, days. Oh, yeah, man. But, you know, Waylon was also very stubborn. <laughs> and that worked for him in, in a lot of ways in his music. And, boy, it worked against him, too, because there are many amazing things Waylon could have done had he not been stubborn. But he it was Waylon's way or the highway, buddy. He 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 wanted it his way. Well stubbornness is kind of what drove the outlaw era yeah. to come into existence. Yeah, it did. It did. And uh you know when I I bet you know about this, the uh the Redheaded Stranger album mm-hmm. that Willie did mm-hmm. when they met with the record label about that uh, they didn't like the music. Mm-hmm. They said, what are you doing? What is this, you know? And Waylon, boy, he blew a, he had a fit. He said, y'all don't know, you don't know what you're doing. We do music, you do business. And he just had a fit in New York and uh, told, Waylon, told Willie, you you got to put this out. I don't care what they say. And, the, of course, it became a multimillion selling album, Redheaded Stranger, which introduced Willie, the Willie we know now. And uh, anyhow, yeah, his his uh, his stamina about his art was, was amazing. How did you feel about the final product? Because it was so important to him to make it autobiographical. Did you feel like from beginning to end you guys really captured it? Uh, I thought so. Waylon, we had some fun times writing. He would come over to my little bitty office. It was kind of like bigger than a closet over at Tom Collins. And he would come in in the mornings, and the first thing he would want to know is who's going to get the burgers at this little burger joint that uh, <laughs> that was kind of famous on the music row. And— uh, 
And we'd sit around and eat burgers, and he'd tell war stories about he and Willie and all of his all of his uh, friends that he ran with. And people would show up at the office not knowing Waylon was sitting up in the kitchen talking about his his career. And it was just a fascinating time, you know. Oh, I could imagine being around Waylon back yeah. then. Oh, it, it was something, man. He 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 filled up a room. I don't mm-hmm. care how big the room was. He filled it up. I want to talk to you about some of your major hits that I really appreciate you for writing. They were part of my nostalgia music that we've talked about numerous times on the podcast. But uh, in 89, you have back-to-back hits with Alabama. Yeah, you and I are both from Alabama, so I yeah. imagine that means a lot to you to be one of the contributors to a lot of their amazing yeah. work. Will yeah. you talk about High Cotton and Southern Star, one yeah. or one or the other? Oh, sure. Uh, High Cotton was a song that Scott Anders and I wrote, and it was it comes as close to being autobiographical for me as any song I've ever had a part in. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that song, and yeah, when we found out, actually, we had two producers working with Alabama at the time, Barry Beckett and and uh, Josh Leo, and they both had held that song. So we had a little battle tug of war there with those two those two producers, and I think yeah, I know uh, Barry Beckett finally let Josh have it. He said if it doesn't work for you, then I'll recut it or whatever. Anyhow. Josh cut it and just did a great record for us on that and started with that old rock and chair sound of the beginning of it. And uh, um, I had an interesting story about that song. It's the only song that I recall an artist asking me to change a line on. Mm-hmm. Randy being the smart guy he was, the lead singer of Alabama, Randy Owen, he asked me if we would consider changing a line we had in the chorus. And the original line was more poetic. And he thought it was a little, uh, what he called, heady for his audience. He knew who he was singing to, and he knew, he knew how they would respond to things. The line was, we were referring to the siblings and us being raised, and we called it uh, raised, let's see, um, it was the hardest crop we ever raised, Mm -hmm. and we were talking about the siblings, brothers and sisters, and he thought it was a little poetic. So we, we changed the line to something very simple. But I learned by doing that, what you do, you you satisfy the artist, first of all, but you also make it as good as what you had or better. So you satisfy your your artistic um, uh, abilities about it. So we changed it to raising uh, as a leaving home was the only uh, uh, is a Hardest thing we ever faced. Yeah. Yeah. Very simple. And, but I learned a big lesson from that. It never was an insult to me if somebody asked me to reconsider, but I never reconsidered. I, I had never had to reconsider another line. What about 
back in the day, there used to be a concern that when you had a great first album, there was a sophomore jinx. I want to hear you talk about the song Don't Rock the Jukebox and what that was like writing that song that helped just take Alan to a different level with the second album. Man, wow. He, uh, well, first of all, Alan brought the title in. Alan and Keith Stigall and me were writing, and we were writing for Alan, although at that time he was singing demos. That's what he was doing to make a living. But he knew. Alan Jackson knew he was going, he was going to head for stardom. He knew it better than any of us. And so anyhow, he brought that title in, and Keith and I looked at each other, and we knew we we had something special there. And um, a lot of people kind of credit me with with being there when the, they got the title, but it it was another Roger that worked for him in the band. He leaned up against the jukebox, and uh, one of the other of them said, "Hey, man, don't you don't rock a jukebox." And so, Alan, Alan brought it to our session that day, and um, as they say, when we got through with that thing, it, the rest was history. Amen. Yeah, and uh, Keith took him in, and he became the Alan Jackson that we know, really. <laughs> Uh, George showed up in this video, didn't he? George. George Jones. I don't know. Did he? I think he is at the end. Uh, oh. Um, but it was a great video. And it was, there we go. Yeah. There's old George. Well. He had a special relationship with George. Oh, yeah. Or has. Yeah, he had or, so much respect for him. and And George, of course, for Alan as well. He knew Alan was going to carry the torch. Yeah, because he had done the song. He was going to sing the real stuff. Yeah, he had done the song, Who's Going to Fill Their Shoes, and he found it in Alan, that's for sure. Exactly. Around uh, not too long after you guys released this song, you started a publishing company, didn't you? Yeah, in the 1990s. I just wonder, as a songwriter yourself, when you open a publishing company, now you're on another side, you're on the flip side of the coin. Mm -hmm. Uh. What does it mean to you to have been someone that could give so many opportunities to so many songwriters and and help facilitate dreams while you're doing your while you're chasing your own? Man, it was well. First of all, I'm I'm a shade tree entrepreneur. I, I love business, and it just so worked out. Uh, I I've always wanted to have a business of my own, and it was right before my face. I mean, I I had been a staff writer for about 20 years for different publishing companies. Not that many, but about three. And uh, and I was figuratively and physically standing out on the front porch of Tom Collins' music, looking up and down the street. I said, I've been with the big ones. I've been with the small ones, independents. Maybe it's time for me to get out on the limb, get on out on the limb. So I went on over to my uh, banker at the time, Brian Williams. I hope that last name is right. He was a a fascinating banker from Mississippi who was a bass player and wanted to be in the music business so badly, but he was really a a great banker. Anyhow, I went over 
And I had had some hits out at the time as a writer and a co-publisher with Tom Collins. So I was able to segue from that income, and he gave me a $100,000 uh, uh, credit line and and let me work with him every month. I'd give him a report on what was going on. And so I started started my own first first writer I signed was uh, uh, Mark Allen Springer, who later wrote Two Sparrows in a Hurricane, which Ooh. was a monster. There you go. And my first song to publish 100% on. But uh, we could talk about more about that stuff. But, yeah, the developing writers has been one of my favorite things that I've ever gotten to do. And uh, it, it made me a better writer. And I may be a better editor than I am a writer because I learned how to edit working with those writers, showing them what was wrong with those songs, you know. Sometimes I would actually know what was wrong, and I would tell them. In the meantime, I would I'd tell them something's not right, and we'd both look for it, you know. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that development of writers, I wouldn't take anything for them. Well, it's really—I I, I love it when— a songwriter has their own publishing company because I think that when you're working with your the writers you're developing, you're able to understand them better. Oh, yeah. You have more of an understanding yeah. for what they're going through, and they get the value of having Roger Murrah yeah. guide them. Yeah, you who know— can, who, it, can, it, who can edit their songs for them. Yeah, it was, it was an amazing relationship because, see, most songwriters that go into publishing don't stay in publishing. Mm -hmm. They're just not good at— business. They don't want to, they don't need to mix the two, honestly. But I was kind of rare in that I love business. And so when I was doing business, I completely let the creative th side rest. And when I was doing creative, when I was writing, I didn't do anything with the business. I'd let it, I'd leave it to people who were working for me. And so it psychologically, it gave one one side of my brain a break while the other was doing something else, you know. And uh, so it, it was a fascinating uh, and kind of rare situation. So a moment ago, you referenced the song Two Sparrows in a Hurricane written yeah. by Springer. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I think that's the single that came out before uh, It's a Little Too Late with Tanya Tucker. I think you're right. I think, I think it was. That's right. Yeah. And we're going to, I had pulled something up to show you. So I want to ask you about this moment. So Tanya Tucker takes your song, It's a Little Too Late, and takes it, makes it a hit. Yeah. In 1994, there was a Super Bowl in Atlanta, and it was a breakout year for country music. Now country music gets to be on the world stage on the Super Bowl halftime show, and Tanya performs your song in front of yeah. 100 million people. So yeah. I'm interested to know what it's like to know that your song, Joey, you have to move it up just a little bit because that's uh, the first performer, Clint Black. Uh, there you go. Nope. Go back a little bit. I want to show him this video because... Roger is such a successful <laughs> songwriter, he wasn't even sure that it had happened. So what? So again, what is it like to know that your song is being performed in the Super Bowl halftime show in front of 100 million people? You know, it's so fascinating. Taylor, you just informed me of this. <laughs> I, 
I mean, I know so little about sports. I, I wasn't, I don't know what I was doing. I was probably eating barbecue or something while this was going on. But man, that's amazing. Yeah. Did you say 100 million people? Well, it, traditionally, they, they attract 100 million viewers for the Super Bowl. And oh, even man. back then, it was still happening. Wow. I, I'm fascinated by it. I'm just blown away. And I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know about it until you told me today. That's unreal. <laughs> That's the kind of success I want to have in my life. To where I, I didn't even know my song was on the Super Bowl. Well, I would have been watching it had I known. I don't, I don't know how I missed it. But Tanya, of course, is, has become a good f friend of mine. I love Tanya Tucker. But I wanted to tell you a funny story about Two Sparrows in a Hurricane. Mm -hmm. After it became a monster hit that it did, Mark Allen Springer and I were talking to somebody one day, and and uh, uh, so they they were talking to Mark, and they said, "Mark, how, let's see, what did they say? What did he say? Mark, you you wrote that song by yourself, didn't you?" And uh, and I I kind of kicked in as a joke to Mark Springer. You'd have to know his sense of humor before you'd know how funny this was, really. But anyhow, whoever we were talking to, I said, you know, it took it took Mark and I about three months for him to write that song by himself. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you, you get the point. I get you know? it. I get it. <laughs> well, honestly, we, we did do, I did do some work with him on it, but he did honestly write it by himself. But, uh, but I was pulling that joke on Mark. But, uh, um, what what was great about Mark Allen Springer? He he knew how to get emotion in songs, and uh, when he when he played me his beginning on Two Sparrows, I said, "Man, alive! This is amazing," and and he he would keep kept bringing it back to me every few day every few days, and something was not quite right about a couple of things, and and we kept working on it. And he he kept working on it, honestly, and just wrote a monster song. Yeah. I'm so proud of him. Joey, see if on that, let's go to the video and see to next to Tanya, Travis Tritt and Waylon Jennings where corn don't grow. Mm. Uh, just hit play from there. I want to show him. So I have numerous desert island artists, <laughs> and uh, Travis Tritt and Waylon Jennings are both on that list. Yeah. I want to ask you about Where Corn Don't Grow. Man, one of my favorite songs, honestly. Mark Allen Springer and I wrote that, and uh, Waylon put it out, and it didn't do so—it did what we, we'd say sometimes. It started up the charts, and it tapered off. And then years later, Travis Tritt calls Waylon and says, Waylon, I'm thinking about recording that song you recorded, uh, uh, Where Corn Don't Grow. He said, go for it, Hoss. I didn't do any any uh, favors or whatever. I don't know what he said. And But, you know, interesting. Joe Diffie was also in that performance at the Warner. Grand Ole Opry. Mm -hmm. yeah, Opry. And... Steve Warner almost recorded it. He had it on hold. Oh, okay. And Joe Diffie almost recorded it as well. No kidding. Yeah. They ended up 
and 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 then they did a killer performance on this thing. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it, it's one of my favorite clips from the Grand Ole Opry on a song that I've had anything to do with. But yeah, and you know, Travis Tritt is one of our best singers, and he could have easily oversung that song, but he didn't. He did it perfectly. Yeah, he's a special artist. I yeah. think. Have you? Did you ever see the video for "Where Corn Don't Grow" when Travis released it? Yeah, I think the guy that wrote the Castaway um, with Tom Hanks. Did you ever see that movie? Yes. yes. Yeah, I think he's a big Travis Tritt fan. He has a scene in Castaway that is almost identical to the "Where Corn Don't Grow" <laughs> video. It's when this guy gets beat up and they take his guitar and everything, and then he checks to make sure his daddy's pocket watch is right there. Has the same scene in Castaway, and they have oh, a couple. They have a couple of lines in Castaway that are like direct uh, Travis Tritt songs. So interesting, so interesting. If you ever watch Castaway again, you have to listen yeah, to it because he tells the girl Kelly, "I love you more than you'll ever know," and which is another <laughs> famous Travis song. <laughs> But yeah, when Travis did Where Corn Don't Grow, I know he took it to a different level, but both versions are amazing. And nowadays, if you go on YouTube, I mean, there are so many covers. Yeah. There's a lot of bluegrass bands that do it. Yeah, yeah. There was a vocal, uh, I don't know what they're, what are they called? Acapella? Yeah, yeah. Acapella Quartet did one. Yeah. It's just such a beautiful song. Thank you. I also want to ask you about technology and music and one of the things I was having fun with the other day when I was getting ready for this is I went to chat GPT and I said, write a modern version of um, where corn don't grow. You're kidding. Yeah. And so so <laughs> let me just preface this with Joey and I have a lot of debates about what chat GPT and AI are going to do to music. Mm. Joey has sold me <laughs> on the production side that it can be very useful for mu- the creation of rhythm, you melody. Know, that's, that's a good point. I haven't heard that discussed. But I am very scared that songwriters, we're going to lose songwriters' originality because they're just going to go into something like Chat GPT and use it. And so I was like, well, what would they do if they were writing where corn don't grow? And this cracked me up. Joey, can you read that out, please? Because I can't even say that far sometimes. But this, the chorus? Just read the chorus. In the heart of the urban scene, I'm chasing dreams where the buildings gleam. But sometimes I long for open space, a quiet place, a slower pace, where the city noise is just a hum, and I can find a place where I can become. Okay. <laughs> They're supposed to use the, the, the hook where corn don't grow, and they didn't even use it. It's all about how you prompt it. So anyway, I say, yeah, all, well, that's true. That's true. I yeah. say all that, Roger, to ask you, what do you think about the intersection of songwriting technology? <laughs> I know it's, I know it's good for music for some people, but we have issues with songwriters that are going to be just taking song ideas from a computer. Well, I don't know how they're going to capture emotion. Mm-hmm. That that's my biggest fear about that. Uh, like like on those lyrics that Joey just read, we would have never used gleam. See, there's a there's a dialogue of country music. There's a way that country people talk, and uh, sometimes they say "ain't." I mean, you can if you're writing for a male artist, you can say "ain't." If you're writing for a female artist, you may say isn't. So it depends on who the character of the song is. And you've got 
they have to remain in character, just like movies. And uh, and so the way we dress them for songs is by the way they talk. The the uh, the phrases they use, the the jokes they say, the the humor they use. Um, you know, I won't go so far as to say it'll never happen, but it's going to be, boy, it's going to take some, I, I don't know what it's going to take, honestly, to get the emotion in there. Did you notice when he was reading that, and I know it's just, again, reading lyric, but it just didn't have any soul? No, it didn't have, it was stoic. It was just, it was almost like, let's just rhyme words. It's just no... It's no emotion. And that's why, you know, I had a guy here that uh, is very, uh, is an important part of the conversational AI industry. And he, he asked me something interesting that when I, when he first asked it, I said, that's a good point. But when the more I think about it, he said to me, what if you found out Garth Brooks, 10 biggest hits were, were written by chat GPT. And I said, well, that's a good point. I mean, I guess I would still like them. But the more I think about it, I would have a different opinion of whoever the people that said they wrote those songs were because they actually it was it wasn't actually their lyric. They just took it from chat GPT. Mm -hmm. The part of music that is so beautiful for me is it's another human being creating it. And that is what gives you the connection to another to me as a human being enjoying it. Yeah, it's it's a human connection thing that happens in the energy. Yeah, it's fusion. It's fusion and uh, energy. I don't know how to explain yes, so much of it, but um, hmm. I had a thought or two as you were talking there about that, but I I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> but well, I, I won't forget. <laughs> That's one good thing. Yeah. Uh, Jim McBride was on here, and he was quoting Joe Walsh when Joe Walsh said, "Once, until AI can tear up a hotel room, I'm not worried about it. <laughs> That's funny. I've never yeah. heard that. Yeah, it cracked me up. Of course, then I did respond with that by saying, well, one day AI might be able to drive your car, which, you know, is another famous line from that song. Yeah. My Maserati goes 185. <laughs> you got something, Joey? So I prompted ChatGPT to write what you said, but I prompted it in a different way. And I just want to read the chorus to you. Hmm. Oh, here we go. Interesting. I, I just prompted it a little different okay and the chorus is in the city where the corn don't grow concrete rows replace the furrows i used to know the sweet country air is just a memory in this asphalt jungle i'm longing to be free a little better that's pretty good it is that is better came up with that, that that's a good point that's a good point well i i respect and admire both of y'all's opinion i still think it sucked yeah well, no no <laughs> i'm not saying it is good but I, the way I prompted it, heavily impacted how it output it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? Well, just out of curiosity, tell me what you prompted it to say. Write a modern version of where the corn don't grow by Travis Tritt. Capture the emotion of the original and make sure to write it as an award-winning country music writer. Hmm. That would be you, Roger, Hmm. the award-winning country music writer. (laughs) Well, I get it. I can dig it. It makes a lot of sense what you're saying, Joey. Uh, uh, that's it. I'm not saying it's as good as the original. No, but, no. Or it even captures it, but 
But it's better because it was prompted better. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Life moves fast. Look at that. Life moves fast like a subway train. They're just using these same old. It's it's what Roger was saying earlier that <laughs> that I really dig. That I dig what he said. Um, they they're just using words that that when he's sitting in a writer's room he would never use. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you something. And that's with the soul that you connect with. Yeah, I I'll tell you something interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of writers, all of us use rhyme rhyming dictionaries, you know. And I found my experience has taught me that usually if you have to look it up, you can't use it. Mm-hmm. It it's it's more it's 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 so casual, it needs to be thought of easily. Yeah, you know, like okay, so let's look at something like I Will Always Love You by Dolly Parton. As beautiful as you can write lyrics, how simple. I will always love you. You I know, because oh, so that them. would be your first thought. You wouldn't have to go to our rhyming dictionary. No, no. The simplicity of music is so beautiful. Well, see, look at Haggard's stuff. Mm-hmm. His stuff is so straight ahead. Uh, today I started loving you again. How, how much more simple than, than right. that? Right, right. So many monstrous songs are just easily spoken. Relative to the current state of country music, what does Roger Murrah think about the current state? Well, you know, I, I uh, number one, I'm not a basher. Mm-hmm. I, I want to give all of our young creative folks as much rope as they need. <laughs> Sounds like they need a lot, but... Um, but I, I have to admit, a lot of them are hanging themselves. Mm-hmm. They, they're not. Uh, I, I, my biggest pet peeve of modern writing is they're not recognizing the uh, what's the word the um, the magic of a true rhyme. They're using fake rhymes so much, and and you just about can't use a fake rhyme with a hook. If you want it to, if you want it to snap, you got to have a true rhyme. Yes, sir. And uh, a lot of our great young new writers, male and female, they're they're just missing something that's right before their eyes, and and it it bothers me for them. Because the one thing that's, that's so difficult for me is to hear a real good song nearly written extremely well. What it's missing just runs me crazy. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it's the simplest things. I mean, an apostrophe, a plural word, sometimes messes a phrase up. It needs to be a singular. And so so you figure out how to say it with a singular word where the phrase is right. And there's so many, so many little nuances of writing. It just still blows my mind. Mm-hmm. I shake my head all the time how it works. When you, when you mix the right lyric and the right melody. Uh, wow, it's fascinating to me. 
do you still do a lot of writing? Yeah, I'm writing a good bit. Are you? Yeah. Are you? In, do you do you love it now as much I as you always have? Nothing. Nothing excites me more than a great song. Yeah. It, nothing excites me. I don't care if it's something I've been a part of or something someone else wrote that I wish I had written. <laughs> Since you were once upon a time an artist, have you ever thought about doing a lot of the songs you've written, High Cotton, Where Corn Don't Grow, Only Love by Winona, and releasing your own version? Absolutely. You know, funny be, you should ask, It would be Taylor, pretty neat. Because I, that's, it's the one thing of my musical dreams that I've had that hasn't come true. Everything else has come true. I still want to do a writer album. I really do. I think it would be amazing. Well, I, um, I hope I hope it I hope I do that before I die, because I'm I'm being talked about I'm being talked to about writing a book, and I'm my feet are getting uh, getting a little uh, antsy about that idea, but uh, I'm doing some other things, but. I really do want to do an album. I really do. Well, if you do it, I hope you'll let me come watch your oh, man. work in the studio. You, you'll, uh, we'll do it. Well, we'll I hang appreciate out. that. I would. I think there's a lot of songwriters. I would love to hear them do their own work, especially you yeah. know a long catalog of hits. Well, and, you know, you know, a lot of people. There, there are a lot of people, especially music industry people, but a whole lot of outsiders that love to hear a songwriter even that can't sing so well, do their song. Absolutely. Because there's an emotion about it. Mm -hmm. There's an intensity about it because he's one with the lyric. He's one with the melody, you know, or she. And uh, there's something special about it. Absolutely. One, one of the last things I wanted to speak to you about is, again, the drive to make it. And you've been a person who has not only created your own success, but helped shepherd the careers of a lot of other writers. Thank you. But if we have people listening right now that are looking up to, to you for all of your success, what is your advice to people on not just the drive to succeed and make it, but sustain it over a long period and how you've done it yourself? You know, uh, Taylor, I, I think the one thing I'm most, proud of in my career is I had hits through four decades. Wow. It's it's very rare. Mm -hmm. The one who's blown the roof off of the industry is Bill Anderson. I don't know how many decades he's been around, but just been writing a monst monstrous songs. But either as a publisher or a writer, I've been able to sustain through four decades, and it's I'm so, so thankful. My my number one feeling is gratitude right now. Amen. I really am. And uh, but I think you asked me a question. I don't know if I answered you. Tonight. No, you did. You're just advice to others on how to sustain success oh. over a long career. Well, number one, be sure you're right with your passion. Be as sure as you can be. You must have passion. You must believe in yourself. Nobody's going to believe like you are. And then just go for it. Don't take no for an answer. You use an important word, gratitude. 
I think sometimes when people are driven towards a goal, they're so singularly focused and they forget that you need the world around you. Oh, yeah. And the people around you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that one of the best ways to to remember that is to always practice gratitude for anyone that will do anything oh, for you. Absolutely. Please don't don't overlook that. And you know, and when it's all said and done, I once thought if I had if I'm ever given an award, I wouldn't know who to thank the most: the ones who uh, discourage me or the ones who encourage me. So there's there's uh, there's motivation in all of it. Just find your motivation and keep going. Isn't that strange? Where um, I think I read an article the other day about Eric Church. Whenever he goes and does a concert or something, he carries the names of the people that told him no in his pocket. Oh, I didn't know and, that. And when you're when you're coming up, nose hurt, but they're also necessary. Oh, yeah. Because they give they, they drive you. They test your um your resiliency. Yes. And it's it's so weird how you don't want to hear the word no, but you also need it so you can be firm. You know, look yeah, I exactly. Mean, a man you wrote so many great exactly. songs with, Alan Jackson, bounced around this city for years. Turned down by everybody. Right. Turned down by all the labels. Yeah. Well, I think I a lady at CBS told him go back to Georgia. <laughs> and, mm. then, and look what he became. So it's really interesting when I get to talk to someone like you that understands what it takes over a long, remarkable career to stay on top, stay humble, stay kind, and have gratitude. Um, I did want to also say that before we get out of here, you have a birthday coming up. Yeah. I just saw it on Facebook yesterday. Yeah. So I said, well, I want to wish you a early happy well, birthday. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Having you here has been an honor, and I would be honored if you come back on hey, anytime. Taylor, anytime you call me, I'll be here. Okay. Well, you're just yeah. down the street. I, I, I really enjoy what you're doing. I appreciate it. I love it. it. I'm kind of jealous. I want to be doing it, too. I may do a podcast in the future. But— um, I love what you're doing, man. Well, you're welcome to come co-host with me anytime because, hey, you know, I think it. the world of you, man. And again, <laughs> you you fill every room you walk into with so much joy that I Thank really appreciate you. you. And um, I'll be looking forward to having you on again soon, oh, I hope. Be my pleasure, man. All right. And thanks thanks to everybody out, out there in viewer land. Thank you. Well, we really appreciate everybody being here, and that's about it for another Country Drive. We will see you guys next time. Everyone have a happy Thanksgiving. We'll be back after the holiday. So long. <laughs>